Esther chapter 4. When Mordecai learned all that, he had, all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, and fasting, and weeping, and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her the queen was deeply distressed, she sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called to Hatach, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hatach went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasury for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg for his favor and plead with him on behalf of the hurt people. And Hatach went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hatach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people in the king, of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law, to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I've not been called to come to the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then, then Mordecai told them the reply to Esther. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai. Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. That is the word of God. Let's pray. God, we praise you and bless you for this, um, this uh, curious book called Esther, where, um, where you're not mentioned once, but God, where we get to see your uh, glory and your province and your, your providence and your promises on every page. And God, I pray that, um, that we would be encouraged and reminded to, um, that you're working. You're working in our individual lives. You're working in every corner of the world. Remind us also that you can be trusted, that we can stand firm on your promises, that we can believe who you say you are and who it is that you say that we are. And God, I pray also that we would be informed that, um, that we have a role to play. Uh, that inside of your providence, that you somehow concur with our prayers and our spirit-filled activities. So God, I pray today that we would be encouraged, that we would be um, spurred on by the gospel to, um, to abandon ourselves, our self-protection, and to live for the glory, your glory, and for the sake of others. So God, thank you for this time. May you be glorified and honored, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. Good morning. Good to see you all. I wasn't... Um, expecting to read scripture. I read it uh, two services in a row, and my, uh, 
my vocal cords were already kind of trashed from the smoke. I don't know if anybody else, I was at my granddaughter's soccer game yesterday and it was like, uh, like playing in the fog. You know, you just had ash all over you. Crazy times that we, that we live in. I got a few questions for you just to start this off. First of all, we're in Esther chapter 4. If you are new with us or, um, or maybe you've been with us one or two weeks um, and, you, and you haven't heard every sermon, I'd encourage you to listen to every sermon. It's like a, uh, it's like a Netflix series, uh, but inspired by God's Word or by, by God Himself, by God's Spirit. And um, it's, it's hard to get the full context um, without um, reading through it and listening to the other sermons. So I'm going to give you a high-level review in just a couple of minutes. But I've titled it A Greater Mediator, um, episode number four, A Greater Mediator. A few questions for you. Is God in control of all that's happening today? Absolutely. He is completely in control. Could he stop um, anything uh, that is evil going on in this world if he so choose? The answer again is yes. Um, are human beings responsible for uh, the evil and the, um, the disarray that's happening in the world today? The answer is Yes. Um, could we do some things to stop it? The answer to that, too, is yes. Um, God is going to do what He is going to do, and at the same time, um, He is moved by the faithful prayers and spirit-filled activities of His people. And we don't know exactly how that happens. Um, there is a theological term that we've talked about before. It's called providential concurrence or divine Concurrence. It's where God and His providence cooperates with the prayers and spirit-filled activities of His children. Somehow he, he uses those. And it's living inside of this paradox, the paradox of divine or providential concurrence, um, that, we, that we need to believe God's promises, uh, trust in God's providence, and third is to die to self, to live our lives not for ourselves, but to live our lives for other people. True life for the believer, the abundant life that Jesus uh, promised us is found inside this paradox where we will experience increasing joy in fulfillment um, as we increasingly believe His promises, um, trust in His providence, and give ourselves away for the sake of others. You know, in this season, um, this 2020 season, that somebody told me this morning, said, you know, like, I've, I've they said, I feel like people are trying to put 2020 behind them, and they're only just going to be disappointed again in 2021. So I'd like to put 2020 behind me, but like we, we, sh we shouldn't like think that 2021 is going to be a whole lot different. But I was in a, uh, a couple months ago, I was in a pretty major funk, um, in a funk that I don't know that I've been in, in certainly all my ministry, and maybe not my entire life. Um, I don't, I'm not willing to call it depression, because I'm not sure I know what depression is, and I don't know that I've ever been depressed, but I was in a funk. And, um, and I found myself actually complaining about um, those that um, are in the trenches with me that, that, um, that they weren't recognizing me being in a, in a funk. And so, like, the, in, in talking to one of them, they said, did you ever stop to think that maybe we were in a funk too? You know, like, like, how, do you, like how do you minister to one another um, when everybody is kind of in a funk? Um, anxious, depressed, whatever it is, um, angry. Um, and we can do, all we can see in times of calamity and trial is our own problems. And it's hard to see um, how other people are doing. True life is found in, and experienced in dying to our comfort, dying to our control, while embracing the risk, don't miss this, of loving God 
and loving others. There's risk in that. There's risk in loving and serving other people. The pathway to this type of life is actually death. Death to ourselves, death to our agenda, so that we can fully um, live in submission to God's spirit for God's glory and for the good of his people. And we have a choice. We have a choice every day. We can choose a dead life by building and preserving our kingdom, or we can choose to live, to live true life by dying to self and living a risky life for the glory of God and the good of others. Two questions for you to ponder as we've been doing the last few weeks. Again, these questions are, neat, are not neat and tidy. They're kind of messy, um, but I, I assume that your community group leaders, if you're going through this, will make the questions better. Um, they'll be on the screen for a couple minutes behind me. Um, first question is this. How do you respond to the pain and suffering of other people? When other people are in a funk, um, what is your um, reflex? How do you respond to that? Number two, are you willing to pray a dangerous and risky prayer? God, what are you doing in my life today? And how do you want me to respond? Like, what do you, like, I see what you're doing, but like, what are you doing? Like, what do you want me to learn? And how do you want me to respond to it? And number three, this question is hopefully going to be unpacked kind of throughout this sermon. But are you dying while you live? Or are you living while you're dead? Are you, are you dying to self and truly living? Or are you living for self and really living a, a dead life? And last is, what aspects of God's promises or character are you forgetting or doubting today? What aspects of God's promises or character are you forgetting or doubting today? And as we've done the last, uh, last three sermons, we, I've broken this out into four different scenes. Um, scene number one is taken through uh, takes us through verses 1 through 5. It's uh, two different griefs. Uh, we're going to see a deep grieving for another person, and we're going to see a shallow grief. Uh, the second scene is verses 6 through 12, um, where we're going to talk about an imperfect mediator. That's actually going to lead us to the perfect mediator. And 13 through 14, the gospel is preached, and in 15 through 17, the gospel is believed. The book of Esther takes place in the Persian Empire, where King Ahasuerus, we're going to refer to him as Xerxes, rules over 127 provinces, the, the entire known world at the time, from Ethiopia to India. Xerxes divorces his wife, Vashti, because at the end of a uh, six-month um, campaign, a six-month um, uh, party, if you will, where he had all of his military officers and government officials to um, to. Uh, try to make a case for invading Greece. Um, at the end of that party, while they were all, they'd all drank too much, he called for Queen Vashti and he wanted to parade her in front of the other drunken, drooling men um, to impress them. And she says, no, I want no part of that. So he divorced her. He, he dismissed her. And, um, and, uh, um, and so that's important because um, he is a, a man of control and power and he actually needs a queen. He needs somebody to objectify. So this led to a search uh, that resembled a beauty pageant for a new queen, but it was really sex trafficking of innocent young women. The king appointed officers in all 127 provinces to seek out and gather uh, beautiful young virgins and bring them into the harem in the citadel or fortress or palace inside the city of Susa. And there they received beauty treatments for an entire year. Then one by one, they entered into the king's chambers. In every one of them, 
had two things in common. They entered the king's chambers a virgin, and they left the next morning as one of his concubines. And the one who pleased the king the most would become queen. Esther was an orphan. She was adopted by her cousin Mordecai. And Mordecai, if you remember, was introduced as the son of Kish, a Benjaminite. That's important because um, King Saul, back before King David, um, was the uh, the, uh, son of Kish. And what's important about that is that um, that King Saul had um, an arch enemy, as the Israelites did. And it was a people group called the Amalekites. That was the Jews' um, arch enemy. And the Amalekites, the reason they became enemies is when the Israelites were on their way to the promised land, um, there, were, there were weak old people and young people lagging behind, and the Amalekites um, wiped them out. So they became an enemy of the Jewish people. Back to Esther. Esther was a young and beautiful virgin, and she was Jewish. It's important. It's not important that she was Jewish from an ethnicity standpoint. The importance of her Jewishness is that she was a follower of her covenant God, Yahweh. She was a Jew. She was one of God's covenant people. Her given name is a Jewish name, Hadassah, but she went by her hidden name or by her public name, which is a Persian name named Esther. Esther was gathered up and taken into the king's harem on this this beauty pageant. She won the favor in the eyes of all who saw her, and she finally won favor with the king. And he set his royal crown on her and made made her queen instead of Vashti. And up until this point, um, Esther has a hidden identity. Her hidden identity is that she is um, a follower of Yahweh, that she's a Jew. Mordecai commanded her to keep that silent. Five years passed since Esther was crowned as queen, and then after a failed assassination attempt on the king, a self-serving ladder climber named Haman weaseled himself into the king's cabinet, and Xerxes appointed him second in charge in order to help him rule the empire and to protect the king. And Xerxes demanded that all who came in contact with Haman would respect him and bow down to him. And we were introduced to Haman, as anybody remember, as the Agagite. And what that tells us is that Haman is from the descendants of the Amalekites, the arch enemy of the Jews. And one day while Haman, after becoming second in charge, as he um, floated through the king's gate, um, enjoying all the praise of the people bowing down to him, there was one man who stood who didn't bow down. One man who didn't bow down to Haman the Agagite, and it it was Mordecai the Jew. As a result, Haman became furious and a generational conflict became personal. Then on the 13th day of the first month, Haman made an edict to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews in the entire empire, 127 provinces. Young and old, women and children. That day, the 13th day of the first month is important because that edict was made and sent out on Passover Eve. The day before God's covenant people would remember and celebrate their deliverance and slavery from Egypt, and they also would be reminded of his promise to save them from all future enemies. In the last episode, in chapter 3, after the edict was made, we saw the king and Haman having a drink while the entire city was thrown into confusion. 
God's covenant people are under a death sentence and they need a mediator. They need somebody to stand in the gap for them. The order for genocide has left the station and in one day, in one single day, 24 hours, 11 months from now, all the Jews would be exterminated. That brings us to chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Two different griefs. First of all, we see a deep grief. While a, while a king and his uh, vice king, if you will, drank, and while a queen lived in comfort, we see a man weeping outside the city gates. And we see Mordecai standing there weeping, and he tears his garment. And tearing your garment or tearing your clothes is an ancient and well-known sign of grieving amongst the Jews. David tore his garments when he heard that Jonathan and Saul, his friends, were killed. Ezra tore his garments when, uh, over the irreligion of Israel. The Persians themselves tore their garments when they were defeated by, at war by the Greeks. In describing a person in grief tearing their clothes, Mike Cosper says this, At such a time as this, it's as though the heart swells with fury and sorrow and bursts out of one's robes. So Mordecai, after tearing his robe, he replaced his torn garments with sackcloth, which is a gunny sack type of material that would irritate the skin so that the mourner would not forget the pain and suffering of others. And then he took ashes from a fire pit and he put it on his head and his shoulders and his face. This was a practice that mourners could use, that did to, so they could identify with death itself. Mordecai was in deep distress, and even though prayer is not explicitly mentioned in the entire book of Esther, and it's not mentioned here, such actions um, are implicitly associated with prayer in the Old Testament. Mordecai, clothed in sackcloth, covered in ashes, goes up to the king's gate, but he's not allowed to enter. And we don't know exactly why, but I would, I would assume it has something to do with image. Something to do with image. The citadel um, is a place of power and feasting and comfort and partying and dancing. They don't need the downer of other people's pain and suffering in a place of comfort and control. And as a genocide of, as the news of the genocide made it to the Jews in all 127 provinces, provinces, excuse me, we are told there is great weeping and lamenting and fasting. As they made their Passover plans, remembering God's past faithfulness, wondering if God is going to be um, sure to His promise to save His people, they now sit, uh, sit under the valley of the shadow of death. So Mordecai is experiencing a deep grief for people that are in the valley of the shadow of death. In verses five through, uh, 4 through 5, we see a shallow grief. Esther gets word that her half-naked adopted father is wailing at the king's gate, so she sends her attendants with clothing. While Mordecai is grieved because the people of God are under the sentence of death, Esther is sad or distressed because Mordecai is upset. She might be a little embarrassed because he's half-naked, but she is distressed because he is upset. Esther responds in the way of the world. She thinks Mordecai's grief can be relieved with a new set of clothes. Like many of us, when, when those around us are grieving and lamenting, we just want them to stop it and be happy. I know I, I work that way. Like, I, like I, I feel better. Like if, even if I know that somebody has had a loss or is in a trial or has had some deep grief, like last week and I see them now and they appear to be fine, like I'm good. 
But here's the deal. They're still dealing with whatever it was. That a, that a happy face doesn't cover up um, pain and suffering. Even if the root of the pain is still present, we're, we're good oftentimes if they appear good. It's, you see, it's always easier and less messy to deal, what's visible, deal with what's visible. Clothing, housing, feeding people. Just a little soup and a pair of clothes might fix the grief. And this is really good. We actually have a church that does this really good. Like meal, like meal trains. We need to like, continue doing that. Like if I ever get sick or whatever, like I want a meal train from a lot of you ladies. Like if it's paleo, gluten-free, lots of meat. Like if I could just say that, if you make a note of that right now. Um, I'm not planning on getting sick, but just make a note of that. And throw in a, a, a cronut on top of that. That would be great. But here's the deal, is that it's not enough. It's not enough. And I don't want to like put that yoke on you or me. But we need to serve people tangibly. But we can't do what Esther's doing and just throw stuff at people's problems just hoping they figure it out. The queen's eunuchs gave her the message that Mordecai refused the clothes. And Esther responded by ordering Hatak, one of the king's eunuchs, to go and learn what this was and why it was. She wanted to know why he refused the clothes and now she wants to know what the source of the grief is. Esther could have pouted and said, fine, if you don't want the clothes, um, go ahead and embarrass yourself sitting there half naked. You're on your own. It's really not my problem. But to her credit and by God's grace, she now seeks to understand by asking the right questions. Why are you doing this? What's going on? How can I pray for you? We see in verses 6 through 12 a need for a mediator. Mordecai told Hachik everything that had happened to him and gave him a copy of the decree for the destruction of all Jewish people, young and old, men and women. We don't know exactly how, how Mordecai uh, got a copy of this decree, um, but it probably tells us he was an insider in some way. He then asked Hachik to explain all of this to Esther and command her to go to the king and to beg for his favor and to plead with him on behalf of the Jewish people. Those people are Mordecai's people and Esther's people. The Jewish people needed someone to mediate and bring about a solution to this conflict. Then we see in verses 10 through 12 that Esther commanded Hachik to go tell Mordecai, I can't do this. Everyone knows that if you go before the king without being called to the king first, there's one law, and that law is death. And we've already seen that he's had no mercy on the last queen. And besides, Esther hasn't been called to the king in over a month. This shows the hopelessness of the situation. She was a member of the harem. Her place was in the bedroom, not the throne room. And in the competitive world of the harem, she wasn't doing very well there either. What are the chances that she could go before the king without being asked and for him to hold out the golden scepter to receive her? The chances were slim and none. And you can almost feel Esther like weighing the risk with the reward and going, nah, sorry, Morty, too much risk. Maybe somebody else can do this. But weighing the risk, the benefits with the risk might be good when it comes to investing, it might be good for um, taking a job. It might be good in learning to do a muscle-up. 
But love is always risky. Love is always sacrificial. Love empties itself for the sake of other people. Love assumes that there's going to be risk and there's going to be pain. And Esther now understands, understands the root of Mordecai's grief. His people, her people, are under the judgment of death. But there's risks. And the risks certainly seem to outweigh the reward or any chance of success. She had to be thinking, Is there, there's got to be another way. I don't need this in my life right now. I have enough problems of my own. Anybody ever said those type of things before? I don't know if I've said them out loud, but I've thought them. She's at a crossroads. She needs to decide whether to ignore the sure fate of her people while keeping her faith and identity as a covenant follower of Yahweh hidden or to take a risk. Her life is relatively good, uh, is relatively, relatively speaking good. Is this her problem? And without knowing the end of the story, and she doesn't know the end of the story, she must decide whether or not to identify with God and His people. Will she choose death by living, or will she choose life by dying? Dying to her fears, dying to her comfort, dying to her Persian identity, and living to who God has made her to be. In verse 12, they were sent back to Mordecai. The eunuch was sent back to Mordecai to tell about the queen's hesitations. Then Mordecai makes a final appeal to Esther in verses 13 through 14. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will, will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Preachers and motivational speakers are fond of quoting the last sentence of Mordecai's speech and just hanging everything on that. And the last sentence is, who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. But the most fascinating section, the more important section, comes right before that. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. What Mordecai is doing, he's expressing faith in that God will rescue the Jews even if Esther does nothing. You see, folks, um, other people's salvation is not on me. And it's not on you. It's on God. It's on God. And, and, he, and God is going to do what He's going to do. If she declines the invitation to live while risking death, the salvation of God's people will come from another place. This is a statement of faith that God will be true to His promise and save His people. Mordecai is deeply grieved, but he stands firm on God's covenant promise that He made to Abraham and reiterated to Isaac, Jacob, and to the entire, entirety of the children of Israel. A covenant promise that Abraham's people will be more numerous than the sand at the seashore or the stars in the sky. That the whole world will be blessed through Abraham. And if this covenant promise is true, and Mordecai believes it is true, then it's not possible for all the Jews in the empire to be annihilated. Mordecai's statement is a matter of fact, and it's not wishful thinking. It's faith in the covenant promises of God. Mordecai is preaching the gospel here. Listen to what Paul says about God's promise in Galatians 3, 7-9. Know then that, if, that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. That's you and I. 
And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. This is through Jesus. This blessing comes through Christ. So then those who, who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. Who's the blessing for? People of faith. When God gave this promise of blessing to Abraham, he announced the gospel in advance. And the Old Testament is laden with shadows pointing forward to the substance, which is Christ. And we see it in question 19 of the Heidelberg Catechism. It says this, God began to reveal the gospel already in paradise, in Eden. It's called the proto-gospel. It was preached in Genesis 3. And later God proclaimed it by the holy patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and through the prophets, and foreshadowed it by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law. And finally, God fulfilled the gospel um, through his own beloved son. So here's the deal. When we're grieving and we see other peoples in great despair, we can have confidence in God's promise to rescue his people from the tyranny of sin and Satan, and death. If the Jews were to perish then, there'd be no blessing for God's people. And Mordecai knew that. He knew that there was a promise of a Messiah that was going to save uh, God's people throughout all time from their sins. There'd be no Jesus. There'd be no sacrifice. There'd be no redemption. We would be lost in our sins forever, separated from God. Heaven would be empty. But today, as believers, we can take risks because we're anchored in. That, that maybe our life might turn out to be a mess. Maybe somebody will leave us or forsake us. But the end of the story is, is secure. That his love for you is secure. Your place in heaven with him is secure. Your place in his kingdom is secure. So Mordecai has faith that God will rescue his people because he has promised to bring forth a Jew, a Messiah, who will save all who believe in him. But then he says to Esther, on top of this, this faithful um, um, belief and a promise, he says this, and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. He doesn't know how God's going to rescue his people, but he knows that he will. Might it be Esther? Was Esther gathered up and taken into the king's harem to be beautified and objectified to become the queen and simply live a life of leisure while continuing to hide her true identity as one of God's people? Or have all these circumstances by God's providence brought her to a place of influence in order to concur what God is already doing to save the Jews? And we've got to ask similar questions. God, why do you have me in this place? This place, 2020, your job, your neighborhood, your marriage. God, why do you have me in this place? And what are you up to? How do you want me to respond? What are you doing, God, and how do you want me to respond? And are we willing to risk it all for the glory of God and for the sake of his people? Knowing that, knowing that ultimately there's, there's no final risk. The greatest risk that we could ever, every, any human being can have is the risk of going to hell. And if you know Jesus Christ, um, you're not going to hell. In fact, you, do, you have the opposite. You are in fellowship with him today, and he, um, and, and he has a place for you, a feast prepared for you in heaven one day. Shall we die for ourselves 
or die for others? Not die to ourselves. Should we die for ourselves or die for others? Are you working harder to preserve your life or are you picking up your cross? Esther is facing two deaths. She can choose to live by doing nothing, but that will at a minimum be a living death as she will miss a great opportunity to live by loving and sacrificing her comfort, her very life. For every human being, death is the finish line of this preliminary race. Every human being. Shall we cross the finish line for ourselves or for other people? And the choice isn't waiting at the finish line. It's being asked for you and I today. Will we cross that line for ourselves or for other people? A book I read a couple years ago by N.D. Wilson is called Living, uh, Death by Living. It's a great book. And I adapted the following. It'll be on the screen from this book, and I kind of personalized it to myself, um, which I'll explain in a minute. Your heartbeats cannot be hoarded. Your reservoir of breaths is draining away. You have hands, blister them while you can. You have bones, make them strain. They can carry nothing to the grave. You have lungs, let them spill with laughter. With an average life expectancy of 78.2 years in the U.S., subtracting eight hours a day for sleeping, this is where I personalize it, I, Dan Hardy, has around 88,000 conscious hours remaining in me in which I could be smiling or scowling, rejoicing my life in this race, in this story, or moaning and complaining about my troubles. I can, I can be giving my fingers, my back, my mind, my words, my breast to my wife, to my children, to my neighbors, to my town to the people at the gym, or I can grasp after the vapor and the vanity for myself, dragging my feet, afraid to die, and therefore afraid to live. And like Adam, I will, I will, I will still die in the end. Living is the same thing as dying. Living well is the same thing as dying for others. If Esther does nothing, if she doesn't identify with her Heavenly Father and her people, she will die as a Persian knowing she did nothing to help those under the sentence of death. And Esther is the only one in the story with two names. And this two-named lady is going to have to decide which name she's going to embrace. It's the same for us. Esther's at a crossroads. She needs to decide if she will uh, preserve her life and lifestyle at all costs or if she will live by risking death. She can live by dying or she can die by trying to live. Something in her awakens, and she chooses to live by dying to herself and risking death, and she believes the gospel. In verses 15 through 17, then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. In this moment, Esther goes from, becoming, from being a young woman making compromises to a mature young queen giving orders. Her response is a language of identification with God and his people. It's a language of mission and obedience. And it's ultimately a language of love. Mordecai's call to action causes her to realize that she's not in the palace for herself. You're not in Windsor for yourself. You're not in your home for yourself. 
But we're in this place for the glory of God and for the sake of other people. Something awakened in her. In her, she's thinking these are now these are my people. That he is my God. I will do it. I have to do it. I want to live by risking death. I don't want to die in the comfort of the palace, knowing that my perish, my people will perish. And Esther agrees with the lyrics in one of Jimmy Buffett's songs. I wouldn't listen to the rest of the song. I'm not sure it's all that great, but he says, "I'd rather die while I'm living, than live while I'm dead." Thank you, Jimmy. In a desperate and courageous act, she replies to Mordecai to gather the Jews to fast for three days and three nights on her behalf. She says, we'll do the same. Esther and her maidens say, we'll fast inside the palace. This was a fast for the salvation of people. And this courageous act of obedience will be done in God's strength for His glory and for the good of His people. When we're operating in our own strength, it's actually a sign that we're not depending upon the Lord. Fasting and prayer, like no other discipline, is, is um, it's a testimony that our dependence is on God and that we need His help. With fear and resolve. She didn't just wake up and say, I'm going to do this and, you know, like, come on, follow me. Like, she's shaking in her princess slippers. She's fearful, but she's resolved. She's fearful and she's resolved. And she says, if I perish, I perish. In a midrash, M-I-D-R-A-S-H, which is a Jewish commentary on the book of Esther, it said that Esther spent her three days meditating on the opening verse of Psalm 22. In day one, in the midst of fast, she prayed, my God. Day two, she prayed, my God. In day three, she prayed, why have you forsaken me? This is the same psalm that Jesus cried out on the cross. The way of Esther is the way of the cross. The way of the cross is the way of life. It's the way to life abundantly. It's the, it's the way to the life that we've been promised. Esther, an imperfect believer, faced the possibility of death and prepared to mediate for her people. She said, if I perish, I perish. Jesus, the perfect believer and the greater mediator, faced certain death. And he did perish for the life of his people, you and I. And Paul describes this act of dying for the sake of others in Philippians 2, 6 through 8. He says, Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself literally made himself nothing by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Esther's journey to the throne room mirrors the journey of Jesus, in which his equality with God entitled him to all the honor, glory, and dignity of life in the palace of heaven. But he laid it aside for the redemption of you and I. This is our path. To say, if I perish, I perish, is to walk in the way of the cross. And for you and I today, we have a choice between death and death. The soul-destroying death of self-interest or the death to self that comes from giving our life away to others. This is the life of the cross. True life is found and experienced by dying to our comfort 
dying to our control while embracing the risk of loving God and loving His people. The pathway to this type of life is death, death to ourself and our agenda so that we can live in submission to God's Spirit for God's glory and the good of His people. So we have a choice. We can choose to live a dead life by building, preserving our life. Or we can choose to live by dying to self and living a risky life for the glory of God and for the good of His people. And I just want to put an addendum onto the end of this. That, um, that none of this type of living increases your standing in God's kingdom in one bit. Because you already have full standing in His kingdom. You already fully love. You already possess every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. That you are already a recipient of Him humbling Himself and obediently going to the cross. That He calls you sons and daughters, child. And that everything that we're seeing here is, a, is motivated or compelled by the love of Christ. And if you are here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, and you're just trying to climb the ladder of just being good enough, when you hit that finish line, you're going to stumble. You're not going to pass through. So the, 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 the path to the finish line is faith in Jesus Christ. But the path to the finish line of living a joyful, abundant life is giving our lives away. Is not building our kingdom, but building His kingdom for His glory and for the good of others. Amen. Would you pray with me? God, thank You for um, the beautiful reality of the gospel. That the gospel is really um, Your promise to bring forth a Messiah to save us from the power and the penalty of our sins and to be brought back into Eden, so to speak, to be brought back into uh, fellowship with a God who created us for fellowship. So God, we praise you and thank you for that reality. And God, uh, Holy Spirit, I just pray that you would um, both compel us by your love and by the gospel to live our lives by dying to self, to live for your glory and for the sake of others. And God, I pray that, um, that we'd be reminded of your promises to see us all the way through, the reminder that we're anchored in already, and to trust in your providence that, um, that it's not a straight line to the finish line, um, but it's ups and downs, it's twists and turns. But all the while, you're on your throne, and you want to use the likes of us, each one of us in this room, for your glory and for the sake of your blood-bought people. So God, give us the courage to say yes. Give us courage to ask the question, what are you up to? And God, how do you want us to respond? We pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.